Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise in Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and let's get to an update to the case that haunted Delphi, Indiana. And let's be honest, it also haunted the true crime community for nearly six years. Now, it all started back on February 13th of 2017, when eighth grade best friends, 14-year-old Libby German and 13-year-old Abby Williams, well, they had asked Libby's sister to take them to the Delphi Historic Trails on their last day of winter break. Now, Delphi, that's a very small community in Indiana. Just over 3,000 residents call the town home. And it's also about 20 minutes northeast of Lafayette, just to kind of give you guys a layout of how big the city is and where it's located. Now, the girls were dropped off at about 1.50 in the afternoon. And on that specific day, the girls were expected to hang out in the bridge area until later that afternoon when Libby's father was expected to pick them up from the trails area. But the girls never showed up, and authorities were alerted to the two missing friends. And this launched an extensive search of the area. And the two girls' bodies were found the next day, which was Valentine's Day. And they were found about a half a mile from where they were dropped off in the wooded area. Now the next day, February 15th, police released a grainy image of a potential suspect that had been retrieved from Libby's smartphone. And one week later, the authorities also released audio from Libby's phone, where a male's voice can be heard saying, down the hill. Five months later, police released a sketch of a potential suspect that showed an older-looking man with a goatee wearing a cap and a hoodie. And one thing police were tight-lipped about is the cause of death for Abby and Libby. Online rumors swirled about the bloody crime scene, leading much speculation to be that stabbing was the cause of death. Now, despite endless hours of police investigation and online speculation that the murderer or murderers were local, the case stalled until 2019 when police released a longer version of the audio from Libby's phone. The recording now said, guys, down the hill. Well, here, I'll just let you hear it because it is haunting. All right, I think for any that lived in the area, that brief sound clip, well, that you can hear it over and over again in your head once you've heard it one time. And in what many in the true crime community found baffling, investigators also released a new composite image of the potential suspect in the murders. In the new sketch, the suspect's clean-shaven and looks to be much younger. And investigators also informed the public that the new sketch should take precedent over the earlier sketch from 2017. They also informed the public during the press conference that the suspect would now be between 18 and 40 years old. Well, after so many painstaking hours of investigation and a whole lot of public frustration in the Delphi area, 50-year-old Delphi resident Richard Allen was arrested in late October of 2022. Allen, he's a CVS worker. Well, he was charged with two counts of murder, and he's held without bond. He pleaded not guilty to the charges, and the probable cause affidavit detailed that a bullet was found between the two girls' bodies, and that the bullet had at one time been chambered in a gun. And the documents detail that when in that gun, 
Specific markings were made on the bullet, and the investigators linked that bullet to one of Allen's guns. And knives were also removed from Allen's home. Now, online sleuths also lamented that the way Allen walked matched the way Bridge Guy walked in the grainy cell phone video. And here's the most recent update to the case. Top prosecutor Nicholas McClelland in the case last week claimed that Allen has confessed multiple times to the killings, saying that purported admissions allegedly happened on five or six different occasions. But attorneys for Allen are asserting that the, quote, incriminating statements, well, they should not be trusted because of the suspect's mental and physical state. Defense attorney Bradley Rossi said last week in the hearing the following, confessions, non-confessions, incriminating statements, non-incriminating statements, we'll deal with that. The jury will hear all of that. Okay, I'm going to just tell you, as an outside observer, Allen has diminished drastically while incarcerated. If you compare a side-by-side image of the day Allen was arrested and current photos, he appears to be a shadow of a man that he once was. And Allen's legal team has requested he be moved out of the Westville Correctional Facility to a county jail, this for his own well-being. Okay, see, back in April, Allen's defense filed an emergency motion citing a dramatic change in Mr. Allen's condition, including his change in demeanor, change in appearance, and change in his overall mental status. They allege that their client has been treated more stringently than other inmates at the correctional facility. They cite extreme surveillance and restraint measures. Now, according to ABC News, Max Baker, he's an intern in the case. Well, he testified last week that he had met Allen four times in meetings at the correctional facility. He stated that in those meetings, Allen was increasingly anxious and had difficulty maintaining a rational exchange, often repeating himself in their conversations. He also stated that although we met Allen in December of 2022, each subsequent meeting has required the intern to reintroduce himself to Allen. Now, Nicholas McLeland, that's the county prosecutor, he said he doubted whether changing facilities would benefit Allen, questioning whether it would be any different. He said the measures that are taken with Allen are meant for Allen's security. Now, Judge Frangel, who oversaw the hearing last week, did not make an immediate decision during that hearing, but later ruled that certain sealed documents would be released. However, she did not specify when those documents would be released. And Judge Gull is not the first judge to oversee this case. Judge Benjamin Diner recused himself from the case, and it's not required for a judge to cite why he would submit an order for recusal, but he had said previously that he felt unsafe and not protected due to the, quote, bloodlust for information from the public. Now also reviewed in the hearing last week were tentative trial dates. The judge and attorneys settled on early January of 2024. A jury for that trial will be selected from Allen County and conducted in Carroll County due to the high-profile nature of the case. I'll keep you updated on if that date stands firm and when the judge rules on the status of Allen. And now to the Utah mom who allegedly poisoned her husband and then wrote a children's book about coping with the grief. I have done an extensive review of this case, and you can listen to those episodes from May 15th and May 22nd of this year. But here's a really short, concise reminder. 
Corey Richens is accused of poisoning her husband, Eric, with fentanyl she illegally purchased from a drug dealer. The charges contend that in early March of 2022, Corey made her husband an alcoholic beverage laced with fentanyl and then supposedly left the bedroom to tend to a child having a night terror. Eric died from the poisoning and Corey called paramedics later that morning. Corey then went on the next day to hold a party celebrating a real estate deal. And later that year, she authored a children's book about how to deal with grief. All right, Eric, for his part, was worried before his murder that Corey was up to no good. So he moved all his assets into a living trust where Corey could not access them. All right, Corey is in jail awaiting trial. And she has now filed a lawsuit from Jell claiming the prenuptial agreement entitles her to her husband's assets. Corey is asking that the prenuptial agreement supersede the transfer of Eric's wealth to the living trust. Now, if that's true, she would be entitled to the family home, her husband's 50% interest in his lucrative masonry business, and the remaining tangible personal property. And it's important to remember that the living trust was established without Corey's knowledge, which means she did not agree that the prenuptial agreement could be revoked or amended. All right, Eric's sister Katie, who was tasked with the living trust duties, is fighting the lawsuit, and a schedule for the new lawsuit will be determined next week. And as far as the murder charge, Corey is being held without Belle until her trial, and that date has yet to be set. All right, here's two quick updates to the infamous Idaho cases. We'll start first with cult mom Lori Vallow Daybell. So let's back up. This is the incredibly complicated case out of Idaho involving two dead spouses, two dead children, and a dead brother. And here's the summary. In 2018, Lori Vallow met Chad Daybell through a new but growing end-of-the-times prepping group. By summer of 2019, Lori's brother Alex had killed Lori's husband, Charles Vallow, claiming he was protecting Lori. Then by September of that year, Lori's two kids were missing. And then in October of that year, Chad's wife, Tammy Daybell, dies suddenly at their Salem, Idaho home. Then in June of 2020, the bodies of JJ and Tylee were found buried in the backyard of Chad's property. During these two years, Chad, well, he had developed a following of his new religious sect, and Lori and Alex, well, they were neck deep in the beliefs. And just because we need to add more unbelievable concepts to this story, Lori's brother Alex, he died of pulmonary problems in December of 2019. All right, Lori faced a jury earlier this year and was found guilty of first-degree murder for the deaths of her two children, 7-year-old J.J. Vallow and 17-year-old Tylee Ryan, and also for Chad's first wife, 49-year-old Tammy Daybell. Guys, it's always so crazy when I give you an update to this case because there really is no way to summarize all the bizarre that surrounded Chad and Lori. Anyway, on our last update to the case, I told you that Lori's defense team, Jim Archibald and John Thomas, were petitioning the court for a new trial, arguing that the language in the original indictment was too confusing and that the instructions given to the jury were also too confusing. They also argued that juror number eight gave an interview after the trial in which he said he was confused by the jury instructions. 
Okay, so what's so confusing according to the defense attorneys? Well, the initial indictment said that Vallo Daybell was charged along with four other co-conspirators, including her husband, Chad Daybell. Now, that language was later changed to say that Lori and Chad were the only conspirators. Well, Judge Boyce rejected that argument, saying the change to the indictment didn't change any of the facts or the evidence. And Judge Boyce also rejected the notion that modification to the jury instructions from the term and to and slash or did not change the trial's outcome. So it's strike one for Lori's defense team. Her sentencing hearing is scheduled for July 31st, which should provide a most likely heart-wrenching look into the personal side of this case because multiple people will provide victim impact statements. And Chad, well, he waived his right to a speedy trial. And so his trial is now set for April of 2024. And remember, Lori also faces conspiracy to commit murder charges in Arizona in the death of her fourth husband, Charles Vallow. Now, I'll be following the sentencing and any other motions her defense team might file, and I'll keep you updated. And finally today, on to the murder of four college students out of northern Idaho. And here's the quick reminder. 28-year-old grad student Brian Koberger is accused of viciously slaughtering four University of Idaho students in Moscow in November of last year. His alleged victims are Zana Kernodal, Ethan Chopin, Maddie Mogan, and Kaylee Gonsalves. Two other students were left alive in the off-campus housing. Well, where we last updated this case was that Koberger had stood silent at his arraignment in order to contest the indictment by a grand jury, which then led the judge in the case to enter a plea of not guilty for the defendant. Now, in a series of back-and-forth filings, that same judge has scheduled a June 27th hearing to determine what records from the grand jury will the defense be allowed to review. All right, okay, see, grand juries, they're super secretive. It's just the grand jury and the prosecution that attend those hearings. And the judge may choose to protect some documents and those jurors by not sharing some information that was discussed. Now, I spoke with a criminal defense attorney in Idaho, and he suggested that usually these items are shared with the defense and that he would expect the judge to make those items available for Koberger's attorneys. But Koberger's attorney has also asked that she see how the grand jury was impaneled. She wants to be certain that the jury was set up fairly, especially given the intense media scrutiny over the case for the six months prior to the grand jury meeting. Now, State Prosecutor Bill Thompson has agreed that the defense should see records related to the grand jury selection process, but he also says that Idaho law does not make available certain records for review, and that Judge John Judge, yeah, that's his name, Judge John Judge, okay, that Judge Judge must decide what can be turned over. So, what does this mean if granted? Well, there could possibly be a delay in the case that was set to go to trial on October 2nd, but I asked the same criminal defense attorney if that would happen, and he said, probably not. He feels whether it was a preliminary hearing or a grand jury, that the defense should be able to make the time frame work. So that leads me to another set of questions I asked the criminal defense attorney. Why a grand jury? The probable cause affidavit seemed pretty tight, So why not just do the preliminary hearing? He could only speculate. 
but his educated guess was that the super secretive grand jury offered some protection to potential witnesses that appeared at the grand jury. So my thoughts are maybe the two surviving roommates. I think it's fair to speculate that those two girls should be treated tenderly based upon what we think they endured. Also, it does make it harder on the defense, so it might have been a strategic play by the state. Let's say they went to the preliminary hearing route, and they were able to see how the surviving roommate reacted when in the courtroom, or maybe they would get to see some, quote, holes in the presentation of limited evidence. That would be a benefit to the defense. So although it was a surprise that the grand jury was impaneled, it isn't that shocking that the state chose that route. Now, yesterday, it was released that detectives have found a statistical match between the DNA of Koberger and the DNA found on the knife sheath near one of the victim's bodies. And we've heard rumors of this, but this was verified via court documents yesterday. So let me clarify exactly what was in the court documents. The match detectives found was done through genetic DNA databases like 23andMe or Ancestry.com, the ones you know about. So the DNA on the knife sheath is linked to Koberger's family tree. Now, in some cases, there's a direct comparison with the suspect's DNA and the DNA found at the crime scene. That is not how this connection was made when Koberger was arrested. But now that he has been charged, the direct comparison tests have been completed. And the court documents that were obtained this week show that the, quote, comparison is a statistical match. Specifically, the STR profile, or the direct comparison between the two. And it's at least 5.37 octillion times more likely to be seen in Koberger than in the general population. Now, this way of testing, it will be refined and presented differently if the case does reach trial. But it does give the true crime listeners an idea of how closely to the crime scene Koberger could possibly be connected. And the last points of business. I don't have an answer yet from the state on whether they will be seeking the death penalty. We'll just have to wait for that one. And this same judge is considering the lifting of the gag order that media outlets and some family members have requested. And we'll just have to wait for that decision as well. So I'll let you know as soon as I know. Well, that's your Monday edition of Rise in Crime. Thanks for being a part of these crime news updates. And check in with me on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. And you can join me again on Thursday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules, and keep safe out there.